The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. Give your attention once more to the reading of God's holy word. For the grass withers and the flowers will fall. The word of the Lord endures forever. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray once more. Heavenly Father, now we come humbly before your word, acknowledging that what your word has, this treasure for our souls, is what we need. And we ask that you would be pleased to open our minds and by your spirit illumine the meaning of these scriptures to us and build up uh, your church through the proclamation of the word, this means of grace that you have given to us. Oh, Father, bless us now as we gather around uh, your holy word in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it seems that it is somewhat of a rite of passage in childhood to have a a coach on a recreational sports team who uh, is a bit old school and uh, likes to to talk about the days when the sport that you're playing was was played in a different way and there was a, a purer time. One of the sayings of some of the old school coaches that I had growing up was the best offense is a good defense, kind of a good old school mentality, emphasizing uh, defense over offense. But what you tend to see as generations go on, especially in sports like basketball or football, is that the, the game becomes more offensive 
with each successive generation. Scores get higher, defense becomes less and less, so that you could say, and actually have heard this saying uh, in recent years, the, the best defense is a good offense. All you need to do is really just focus on outscoring your opponent. And if you stay kind of in attack mode all the while throughout the contest, more often than not, you will come out uh, the victor. So the mentality now is, is more offensive and staying on the move, continuing to advance at all times. The kingdom of God, since the times of John the Baptist, we hear Jesus say, has been advancing. It's been offensive mode, going throughout the world. And Jesus even here teaches us not only that the kingdom is doing that, that it is advancing through the world, but also that those who are his people are in a sense to mirror this mentality, to press into the kingdom and to live with the courage of faith. But in order to do that, you need basically two things that we see here uh, in, in the word which Christ gives to us. First, we need to not be, to use another meaning of the same word, we need to not be offended by the manner of Jesus' ministry. Don't be offended. Don't find offensive the manner of the salvation that we find in Christ. And secondly, we need to notice and recognize the signs of the times, the great shift that Jesus has brought about in his person and his work. In other words, to recognize who he is as the king of his kingdom and to live consciously in light of his salvation and his reign. So our central theme today is, is this, do not be offended at the manner of God's salvation in Jesus, but rather noticing the signs of the times, give everything in service to Christ and his kingdom as it marches through this world. Give all that you are in service to Christ and his kingdom as it marches through this world. Let's consider these things together. First, this idea of being offended by grace, being offended by Christ. The disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus here, and what is the occasion uh, for this question? They come to him saying, explain what you're doing. Well, there's probably two possibilities, at least, for what's going on here. The first possibility might be this, that John the Baptist realizes he's not going to be around much longer. And so in preparation for that, he, he has his disciples go to Jesus, in other words, to, to prepare them for the, the, the day when he will no longer be on earth, and he wants to point them to Jesus. So go to Jesus, ask him about his ministry, allow him to explain it to you. One possibility. What, what I believe is the more likely possibility is that John himself is confused about what is happening in Jesus' ministry. And, and we see that there, the first couple of verses, it says that, that the way Matthew describes it to us under the inspiration of the Spirit is that John asks Jesus this question, right? Through his disciples, he sends them to him because he's not able to come. He sends them, the, he, he speaks to Jesus through his disciples. In other words, he's wondering about exactly what he is to understand about the ministry of Jesus. John expected that the Messiah would come with eschatological, with end times judgment, which would be simultaneous with his appearance. He would come to exercise judgment, especially on the wicked. And we saw that in, in Malachi chapter 3, didn't we? The way that judgment is described in that passage. Verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? Right? That was the mentality of John as he was 
proclaiming this one who was to come after him. Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Later on in chapter 4 of Malachi, we have much of the same. And we'll use the old King James language for this one. For behold, the day cometh. That's that coming judgment. That day that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. So this question is then put to to Jesus. Are you the one? Should we look for another? Clarify what you are doing. Jesus responds, I am the promised Messiah. I am the one who has been promised to bring salvation. So believe in me. Submit to me. Understand that I am the one who has the authority to to, to shape the character of my ministry. Don't question. And he answers by saying, look, I'm fulfilling the prophecies that have been written about me. In my ministry, those things are being fulfilled. So somewhere like Isaiah 35 is alluded to in in Jesus' response today. Uh, Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Also alluded to in our text this morning, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. We see even in these two passages, there are two basic themes being woven together, judgment and blessing being brought together in uh, in these prophecies. So what do we make of that? Because this seems to be the question for the disciples of John the Baptist. We, We expected this judgment to come, and why have we not seen it? Well, we look at the ministry of Jesus, and the answer to this emerges, doesn't it? Certainly judgment and blessing come in Jesus Christ, but we understand it relative to his two comings, his first coming and his second coming. You can liken this to driving through the desert, something like um, western Texas or uh, New Mexico, Arizona, eastern California, driving through the desert, and you'll see this vast expanse of land, and you'll see mountains in the distance, and, and perhaps you see two mountains in the distance that look to be about side by side. And you'll drive for about an hour and you'll realize that you're coming up to the first mountain, but the second one is still far off in the distance. This is something like the perspective of of the prophets. They look forward to the day of the Messiah and they, they see judgment and blessing coming in the Messiah. Blessing coming to the people of God, judgment coming to the wicked. And as Jesus comes to earth in his ministry... That is the character that we see. He comes not to exercise judgment, but in a sense to to bear judgment, to proclaim God's favor towards sinners, to, to come and to bring blessing and salvation. Of course, Jesus comes in in judgment and mercy. But you can basically break it down. That first coming, he bears judgment in order to extend mercy. When he comes again, he will come again on a white horse to exercise judgment. As the church, we are to to bear that same character of what Christ did in his first coming. We are to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor 
in every corner of the world. We are to, to extend what uh, the, the, the Canons of Dort call the, the free offer of the gospel, to proclaim it in every corner of the world that God may in his sovereign grace gather his people to himself. This is the, the engine of missions throughout the world. What do we do? We publish good news abroad. That is likened to the character of how Jesus came, bearing judgment and extending mercy. So then Jesus gives this very important blessing. Yes, I am the Messiah. I am the one. Believe in me. Submit to me. And then he gives this very important blessing. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That is to say, blessed, holding the favor of God, possessing the favor of God, is the one who finds no reason for unbelief in the way in which I am revealing my kingdom. Of course, for John and his disciples, this was the exact issue. It seems to be that they're failing to understand why this judgment has been delayed. And rather than Jesus coming to slay the wicked, he is coming and he dines with tax collectors and sinners. What to make of this? It's almost something like the, the, the issue that seems to be before the disciples of John would have been something like the parable of the, the master of the vineyard in Matthew 20. And remember, the, the master of the house is hiring various workers throughout the day, has promised to pay them all a denarius, a day's wage for their work. He hires one group of workers at the very end of the day. And when the work is finished shortly thereafter, uh, he first settles up with those who have been working for the shortest amount of time. He gives them a full denarius. And those who were hired first, what do they start thinking? Oh, man, this is going to be great. We've been working for, for much longer. And when it comes time for them to receive their wage, what do they receive? A denarius. What they agreed to beforehand. They hold this against the master of the house. The master of the house says, I've, do I've done nothing unfair to you. And then there's this wonderful little phrase, do you begrudge my generosity? Isn't it for the master of the house to determine how he extends favor and blessing. Though certainly we see something like self-righteousness present in the Pharisees and the scribes, the elite religious class in Israel at that day. But also we see it, a, a, a tinge of it here in the disciples of John the Baptist, perhaps. And they're saying, we, we made ourselves ready. We were ready for the coming day of the Lord. We accepted the baptism of John, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We were ready. And now, how do you describe your ministry? Why is it known in this kind of way? See, self-righteousness would make one begrudge the generosity of God. And if we don't have a right view of grace, of mercy, of forgiveness we too could begrudge the generosity of God. Who is God to extend mercy to such a wicked sinner? How wicked they were before they came to Christ. May we never, may we never be characterized by such a mentality. Alan preached for us at the Presbytery meeting last month, and he, he made this exact point, actually from, from this exact chapter, the, the next passage that, that is to come, and it's, it, it, it is a challenge for us, isn't it, that when we encounter things in this culture, in this world, that are disgusting to us, what is our instinct? Is, is, is our instinct to, in a sense, judge and condemn those people ourselves? Or 
Do we remember the heart and the character of Jesus who is moving towards sinners, who is filled with compassion for them? And do we have the humility to look into our own hearts and to say, but for the grace of God, there go I. So to thank God for his mercy and his grace that has changed and transformed us and also to be filled with compassion that God may extend grace to that person. There is a coming generation of people in this culture that are going to be filled with despair and emptiness and looking out onto a life that is going to be extremely depressing. You think of something like the the transgender movement in this culture and young people who will have their entire lives altered going forward and then they get beyond that place and they realize, what have I done? And there will be many who will come looking for answers. And will the church be filled with compassion for God to save those who were mired deeply in sin and wickedness? Being offended by grace, may we never be. The second possibility of being offended by grace would perhaps be the more common uh, objection in today's world is that if you tell people they need to be forgiven... If you tell people they need their sin to be borne by the Son of God, they will reject that message. The whole idea of atonement, of bearing God's wrath, of salvation in Jesus Christ alone, this is offensive to many people. We're coming up that time of the year where we're thinking about this. How are we made right with God? Jesus needed to bear your sin all the way to death. The, the modern conception of the gospel was described in the 20th century by uh, a theologian, H. Richard Niebuhr, who said this. This is really kind of the the modern mindset of the, the kingdom of God. A God without wrath brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgments through the ministry of Christ without a cross. It's all kind of vague notions of, of God, blessing, kingdom, brotherhood, eternal life. No real distinctions in and through the teaching. Universalism, absence of sin, all these kinds of problems. But Jesus, in his presence, his very presence on the earth, proves our need for him. Why else would he come? He came to seek and to save the lost. You see, filled with compassion for the lost, the church must be ready to stand and to proclaim to a world that, yes, without the saving grace of God, we are desperately wicked. Desperately wicked and utterly without hope apart from Jesus Christ. And blessed is the one who is not offended by him in any way. Blessed is the one who is not offended by the character of his ministry. We are to be soldiers of the cross looking to the cross as that, uh, our source of hope alone and salvation alone is found through Christ and his work for us at the cross. The God-man who lived and died for us and then filled with compassion for a world and people who need to be saved from their sin, we publish the hope of Jesus Christ throughout the world. Do not be offended by the character of of Jesus' ministry. John does something good here. If if indeed he he is wanting clarification, he does do something that uh, we can learn from. What does he do? He sends his disciples to Jesus. He says, go, in a sense, to say, listen to Jesus, believe him, 
and receive his word. There may be many things that confuse us uh, in regards to deeper things of our faith, but what do we do? We listen to God's word, we believe it, and we receive it. Jesus then teaches us that the kingdom is moving. The kingdom is on the offensive. It is intruding into this age, and he uses John the Baptist as his example here. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Jesus first says, of the old era, the greatest is John the Baptist. Now Jesus is not describing him as being uh, better in character, in moral character, than anyone else who came before Jesus. He's just saying, uh, relative to his place in redemptive history, the unfolding of the story of Scripture, he, is, uh, he occupies the greatest position because he is closest to the king. And in a kingdom, we might say, uh, have the highest regard for the ones who are closest to the king. John the Baptist is the one who is closest to the king, and that's why Jesus says he is the greatest of this old era. But then Jesus says the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And, and, and by doing so, he recognizes this great development in the unfolding of Scripture and the unfolding of redemption that happens in the coming of Jesus, in the appearance of Jesus. John was right on the precipice of the king to come, but he is not there yet, thinking of his position in terms of uh, redemptive history. Again, this is not to say John isn't sharing in the blessings of salvation. I think certainly we would say he is, and saved by grace, and one of God's children. Jesus is considering him as to his place in redemptive history. Jesus is teaching us that he alone is the one who brings this new age, this new development, this age of fulfillment, the fullness of the times, the last days, the, the new wine that is to be put in new wineskins. It comes in Jesus Christ alone, and it intrudes into the present. Now, in verse 12, there is uh, something, just bear with me for a couple of minutes, you've got to explain something. Now, I love our, our new fancy ESV Bibles, I do love this translation. Verse 12 in the ESV, I believe that our old ones, the NIV actually gets it uh, more correct. And so verse 12 in, in the New International Version, it says this, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. Remember in our translation it says, suffered violence? I believe it's, it's, it's better to say this, The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. There's a complex Greek construction there, and I won't lecture us all on, on the Greek, but suffice it to say, I believe that the, the NIV has it right here. That's what the kingdom is doing. Since the days of John the Baptist, it has been intruding into the present. It has been forcefully advancing through the world, and forceful men lay hold of it. See, though this world is not very accommodating to the grace of Jesus Christ, against all odds and against all expectation, the kingdom of God is on the move, and it continues to be on the move. And we need to recognize that and live in light of it. Now, Jesus says, forceful men lay hold of it. So that's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. Jesus is commending us to be of his people that mirror the character of his kingdom on the move, on the offense. 
And he says that those who are like him, who occupy this mentality, will lay hold of the salvation that is found in Christ alone, will act with the courage of faith, with a firmness of conviction, and do all that they have to lay hold of salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus is calling us to be forceful, to be courageous in faith. The Christian faith for all, for men, women, and children is not for the faint of heart. It's for those who have the courage of faith. It's not the stuff of daytime talk shows. It's not the the stuff of spiritual self-help books that you find in any bookstore. It is a call to be strong and courageous. It is a call to stand firm for Jesus Christ. It is a call to be brave William Gurnall says this, There is nothing that a Christian can do that is not an act of valor. It requires more prowess and greatness of spirit to obey God faithfully than to command an army of men. It takes more courage to be a Christian than a captain. He goes on to say this, The fearful are those miserable ones who march for hell. The violent and the valiant are those which take heaven by force. Cowards never won heaven. Say not thou hast royal blood running in your veins and art begotten of God, except that thou can prove your pedigree by this heroic spirit to dare to be holy in the face of men and devils. Be forceful. Lay hold of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's a call to give all that you are for Christ and his kingdom. It's a call to give all that you have And to say, my greatest foundation, foundational conviction for my existence in this life is to obtain Christ and his kingdom. To get to the end of my life loving and treasuring Christ. To know him more with each step that I take. It's the mentality that we find in chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then... In his joy, in other words, it is his great joy to do this, he sells all that he has and buys that field. You see what happens in Christ. You see salvation in Christ. It is your great joy to give all that you have, to buy that field. The next verse. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had. And bought it. Christ and his kingdom is that pearl of great price. Jesus says, be forceful. Lay hold of it. Live each moment to gain the blessing of seeing your king. Now understand, this is not to say anything against salvation by grace. Not at all. It's it's to acknowledge that there is a life to live to which God calls us. And those transformed by grace gladly live with passion and with zeal to obtain the resurrection of the dead. This is exactly what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Listen. He says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake... I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, now here's salvation by grace, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. By grace through faith, we fight as soldiers of the cross. We deny ourselves. We give all that we have until our dying breath. The comfort is that we do it as those who already belong to Christ. That's the wonder of our, of our gospel, that gospel that was preserved, recovered perhaps in the Reformation, grace alone through faith alone. Paul says in the next verse, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. I press on to see Jesus. I press on to possess all of him because Christ Jesus possesses me, because Christ has made me his own. We fight, we live, we walk as blood-bought sinners with firmness of conviction and assurance, knowing that we are safe in the arms of Christ. It's not for the timid, but the great blessing is that Christ will strengthen you. Remember last week? He turns bruised reeds into strong cedars, timid lambs into bold lions. You hear that Christianity is not for the faint of heart. You hear that Christianity is not for the cowardly. You hear that it's for the strong and the brave and the courageous. And maybe you say to yourself, I don't feel very strong, brave, courageous. Christ will strengthen you. Gurnall goes on to say this, He shall lead you on with courage. He shall bring you off with honor. He lived and died for you. He will live and die with you. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Daniel 11 verse 32 says this, The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The people who know their God, who know what he has done for them, who know something of his love and his mercy and his grace, those are the ones who will stand firm and take action. Those are the ones who will be strong in the midst of the fight. Those are the ones who will resolve themselves to fight until their dying breath. For the battle goes on, and it does not finish until our time on earth is done. The kingdom of heaven advances, and forceful men lay hold of it and gladly give all that they are to share in the salvation of Christ. So what is your answer to Jesus? What is your answer to Jesus? If John is Elijah, who was to come, then Jesus is king. Then all is to be given to him. And in your joy, you are to sell all that you have to buy that field, to buy that pearl of great price. And you will be great in the kingdom of heaven if you live consciously recognizing his salvation, his grace, and his mercy Come to him. Do not be offended by his grace. Take joy in his salvation and lay hold of it with all that you are. Let's pray.